0: In this interview, I'm once again joined by Daisan Skinner, a British Zen Roshi trained in both the Soto and Rinzai schools. We learn why seeing so many senior monks become exhausted and ill, sent Daisan on a search to Japan for the secret energy practices of Zen master Hakuin. Daisan reveals why he left the Soto school to join controversial Rinzai Roshi Shinzan Miyamai, whose motto was, First priority is Kensho, Second priority is Kensho, third priority is Kenjo. Daisan recounts stories of studying with Shinzan Roshi, practicing Koan on a mountain and the chaotic lifestyle at Gyokiruji Temple. So without further ado, Daisan Skinner. Daisan, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Nice to see you.
0: So in our last episode, we left you just about to go to Japan. And in 2003, you began training with Rinzai Zen master Shinzan Miami Roshi of Gyokiruji Temple in Japan. You went on to become the vice abbot there and completed the koan curriculum of the Mino branch of the Inzan lineage of Rinzai Zen.
1: Well remembered. It's a
0: a bit of a mouthful. In 2007, you received Inka from Shinzan Roshi and then returned to the UK to teach. So I'm curious, first of all,
1: why it was you decided to leave the Soto School? So, it was a couple of reasons, really. Um I'd been um, I think it was about fourteen years, something like that, in that particular monastery. And um, uh, I was kind of interested in the Koan tradition that uh, we actually touched on a tiny bit in Sotozim, but but not to the you know huge degree that you find in Rinzai. But even more so, I was finding the the monastery I was in. People were getting sick with quite alarming frequency, and I can remember looking around, and of the six people running the place, five of them uh, had sort of chronic, um, basically sort of energy depletion conditions. Um, You know, uh, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, um, Emmy. Emmy. That exactly. That sort of thing, and so. that, that seemed like uh, there was a little bit missing out of the out of the uh, out of the mix there, and um, so having looked a little bit into the um, strong emphasis on um, energy and embodiment in the Rinzai school, um, I thought maybe that was a kind of a remedy, and that's ex- that's actually what I found um, uh, probably the most important. Rinzai Zen master, certainly in Japan in the last 500 years, also in his kind of mid-20s, pretty much completely run out of steam, got himself in a right old mess energetically. And then, you know, perhaps, I don't know if it's a story you want to unpack, but he, uh, he gradually put himself back together again and uh, was notably very, very um, energized and powerful right up into his 80s. So this was very front and center in the mix there. So that was a kind of a concern. And uh, so, for example, um, the abbot, my first teacher, um, basically has had to live in a hermitage for many years, uh, able to be in public for about two weeks a year, has to rest for the rest of the time. So this kind of stuff is not ancient history. You know, it still happens. It's, it's, It's definitely possible to get in a, a kind of a groove where it's almost like the further you go spiritually the weaker you get physically it's almost like there's a robbing peter to pay paul dynamic that can get set up if um if there are certain things that aren't um there in the mix so it was probably those two main things um that uh, that got me looking kind of over the fence as it were
0: i would like to go into quite a bit of detail about you know, Hakuin story a bit later, and those practices that you that you came to discover. But I'm curious when you say robbing Peter to pay Paul, can you perhaps go into a little more detail with that in terms of diagnosing that problem? What do you think actually is going on there, with your colleagues at that first place uh, that was causing them to become so sick, and that causes people to become weak doing spiritual practice? Mm.
1: Well, I like to compare. Uh, Basically two broad kind of models uh, of, um, if you like, spiritual development from an energetic perspective. So we could think of um, um, what you could call the, the renunciate model, which you find you know very strongly in India. For example, but also in the Western world, where the idea is you've you've sort of anybody who's going to do this stuff with any degree of seriousness has left home. They've left their family. They're dead to society. They're literally outside um, the societal matrix from then on. And um, we could think of that model, if you like, as being like a thermometer. You know, if you if you imagine you've got a thermometer, you've got the bulb here, and then you've got the um, the, uh, the the uh, the long narrow part, and it's almost like the practice heats the thermometer bulb and sort of shoots the the mercury up. But the more that happens, the less mercury there is down there in the base, as it were. And you could even get to the point where there's basically no mercury left in the base. And similarly, um, you know, on on a on an energetic level, you know, you can you can, as it were, use that sort of um, we could call it perhaps the sort of primal animal basic energy as you know something that you can sort of shoot upwards. But um, you know, as you do, there's less and less down there in the base. And I think this is the sort of thing I was seeing. Now we could contrast that with um, in East Asia there's this very strong emphasis on longevity. You know, China, Japan, Korea, you don't do anything that's gonna shorten your life. With the other model, you know, you're dead already. So if you're not five years off your life, who cares? You're already dead. You're already out of that game. Um, In um, East Asia, uh, rather than perhaps that thermometer sort of model, um, I, I think of it as like a tree, where it's like you put a lot of emphasis on really looking after the roots of the tree. And it's like the if the roots are deep and strong, then the tree can grow high safely and sustainably. If the roots aren't really nurtured, then the higher the tree grows, the more unstable it becomes, and eventually we're gonna have kind of disaster. So there's this strong, strong emphasis on really, um, uh, rather than, as it were, you know, uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul, you're looking after Peter with all your might, so that Paul can develop. And uh, I think that's basically the sort of um, contrast that we could draw.
0: What is behind those metaphors of the thermometer, the mercury, and so on? If, In other words, what are the processes that are taking place there, would you say? Um, behind the metaphor
1: so I think we can look at that on a lot of levels Um, uh, I think we can think about the body and there's these two primal sort of um, or primary orientations. I think we can see different traditions as taking essentially a body negative approach as opposed to a body positive approach. Now the body negative approach that you find in a number of spiritual traditions is basically um, sort of views uh, this body and uh, as kind of like the animal part that we need to, as it were, escape from. That this life is a time of trial. That our our promised land is elsewhere. That that this is our testing time. And there's essentially a, I suppose, a denigration of the um, the the present and current situation that we find ourselves in. And so you know, typically the body negative approach. Uh, it also includes a sort of a world-negative approach as well, and uh, so obviously that's that's a, a kind of a strong underlying thread in Western culture, um, and as well as other places. And then we have this sort of body-positive kind of dimension in which um, we don't need to go anywhere else; it's right here, right now. Should our view, should our vision, should our presence be sufficiently attuned that we can, as it were, wake up to what's here. And so we're not trying to escape. We're not trying to get anywhere else. And I, I think you could pretty much correlate these energetic conditions with those philosophical bases, perhaps. Um, is that is that what you're driving at, or are you thinking more? Well, you tell me what you're thinking
0: of course there's the philosophical or one's view may have an effect then perhaps the nature of one's practice and maybe even lifestyle if you're a monk with living in the sort of a place where you have decades of malnutrition or not proper nutrition sleep deprivation rigorous practice schedule that you described one can imagine that would take a toll on the endocrine system for instance and 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 maybe even um you know, do some sort of psychological toll. Uh, eventually yeah. the, the, the body-mind system would collapse from routine and lifestyle as much as from view and philosophical practice. Although I assume the view may inform the lifestyle, you know. So I'm supposing, I'm supposing, are, are there, do you think, uh, biological, circumstantial or lifestyle specific effects? Or is it something about the the mode of practice which has an effect on the energy system of the body or the hormonal system of the body somehow? Uh, At that sort of level is what I was curious about.
1: Okay, I'm not sure I'm distinguishing those two. So lifestyle as opposed to what? Uh, One's philosophical view of the body. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure lifestyle makes makes a difference. And, of course, Japan and probably Rinzai Zen particularly is a bit notorious for really pushing the boat out on that level. So you could almost view that as a as a body negative thing superficially, although actually it isn't. Um, what What's going on to a large degree there is uh, the monasteries in Japan are not really accurately called monasteries. I think they're better called seminaries, really. They're places where to vast, you know, extent, you've got young guys of between about 18 and 25 sort of thing, full of juice, who are there for a a limited time, you know, possibly a couple of years, three years kind of thing, um, before they go back to their home temple, which in many cases is quite well off. These are quite privileged young men in many cases. Um, And so they're going through a sort of a a boot camp kind of experience, really. and sort of the uh, intention is to sort of bash a bit of, you know, bit of spirituality and a few good stories into them, really. And then, um, you know, and they sort of run on that for life. Now, some of those guys, typically, they're they're almost all they're they're, they're sons of temple families. So their dad is a temple priest, and um, and so they um, they they in a sense they're born to this and in many cases that leads to a quite a a dedicated attitude you know a bit like perhaps prince charles you know being born to what what he's doing you know there's there's something quite impressive there in in some quarters but also in some quarters there's a you know, just going through the motions, really. To um, you know, and guys used to tell me stories about how they'd learned to fall asleep with their eyes open, so they could be sat in meditation, and you know, and still just sleep their way through it all, stuff like that. You know, young guys and all that. Lots of you know, escaping over the wall at night, even though the nights are quite short. Um, so it's a it's a bit of a mixed picture, but that is a transitory kind of you know tough boot camp kind of thing and um uh typically just a few years and um you know uh, there's a there's something um uh that, that that's very specific about that um but underlying that they have um in in um in japan there's this very strong um distinction between what they call soto and naka uh, soto means kind of like the outside or the public face of things. And, you know, your public face of a Zen institution is pretty fierce. And then the Naka is like the actual, the heart, the inside, the core. And, for example, on this, in the Soto kind of dimension, Japan is extremely um, uh, or extremely very misogynistic, male-dominated and all that. The Naka dimension, utterly, utterly a matriarchy, okay, very, very female dominated. And um, the, the temples have this dimension too. So when people visit, they, they, all they see, they, the public face, they see this very strict, this very um, 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 hard. Um, very masculine, I suppose, dimension. And there is a fair bit of deprivation. The food's pretty rubbish. People, you know, get beriberi sometimes because the protein's so low, stuff like that. Um, But then there is this other side, this um, um, very uh, yielding, surrendering, feminine um, uh, dimension, which is also very kind and very, uh, but as I say, it's hidden. You won't get to know it unless you, you're you're part of the whole thing. It's not for public consumption, and so there is much more of a balance in the mix than than uh, is superficially there at first first glance.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I think I'd like to come back to that. I was curious if if people in your original temple were getting sick because of poor nutrition and lack of sleep or. Or was it due to the specific practice focus that they had? Ah, That's okay. kind of what I'm driving at.
1: Okay, okay. Um, I suspect um, practice-wise, and the reason I say that is because um, you know, since I got back from Japan, a bit over twelve years ago now, I've been specifically working uh, with with exploring uh, the the um, the, uh, the practice um, matrix, if you like. That, that comes out of my particular branch of the Rinzai tradition, um, which is based around a, a framework called the two wings of a bird. This, this sort of image goes right back to Zen Master Hakuin back in the, uh, in the uh, 18th century. Uh, essentially, one wing of the bird is um, a practice orientation towards insight, towards seeing clearly who and what you are and I guess how and what life is and then the other wing are these practices to to ground and energize uh, so that the idea being that not only do you sort of get that shift in perception but you're able to live it out um, to to, as it were live um, your optimal life so that you can make a difference so that you can actually make a difference in the world so that you you've actually got something to share rather than being a sort of shadow of your former self and not able to engage and so that's been a big thread in what i've been sharing with people over the last 12 years in a to a large degree people living you know in the stresses and strains of modern western life and it's been really extraordinary how people have time and again come to me and said things like, you know, before I roll into through the rush hour, bash through my nine hours at work, back through the, you know, tube system, and, and it would kill me, you know? It would be like, my weekends would be, you know, just, just like a write-off. Now, with doing these practices, I've got, you know, a bit of juice left over, I can play with the kids when I get home, I can do some meditation practice, you know, uh, it's really extraordinary, the the difference. And you know, with myself, um, you know, probably the last year, particularly in Japan, um, where my teacher basically stepped back and said, "Okay, you you need to take over here." And he kind of disappeared to a large degree. And um, it's a very poor temple. I had to kind of make sure we had money coming in. Everybody was okay. Everybody was looked after. The grounds were looked after. The whole thing. It was kind of like three hours sleep a night for about a year straight. And these practices were just keeping me going basically right the way through so i i in in my own case i've i i was pretty sold on it but i didn't know how it was going to work in terms of the western world and uh, it's been extraordinary so i'm pretty sure um well i'm i'm sold if if uh, if you set yourself up right practice wise it's going to make uh, particularly over the long game it's going to make an extraordinary difference
0: yeah, that's fascinating. And in your book, Practical Zen, you go into quite a lot of depth about a suite of, of those practices. And I'd love to dive into that a little bit later. It, it is a fascinating subject. You write here about Shinzan Roshi. There was a very different climate around my current teacher, Zen master Shinzan Roshi. He used to begin many of his morning talks with the first priority is Kensho, the second priority is Kensho, the third priority is Kensho translated as knowing who you really are or perceiving your true nature. This shift into enlightened awareness is celebrated in countless Zen records. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit how it was you discovered or found Shinzan Roshi and what sort of man he was or what sort of man he is.
1: Sure, sure. So, um, well, I first um, heard about him on a little island uh, off the coast of Vancouver, Canada, Uh, you've got, um, just off the coast there, you've got Vancouver Island, which is huge, probably, I don't know, maybe the size of Britain. And in the channel in between, there's a almost like a necklace of tiny, beautiful little islands. And a friend of mine has a retreat center on an island called Reed Island, which uh, is tiny, 80 people, no roads, uh, just pristine. And uh, on the next island, which is called Cortez, there's a quite a big, well-known retreat center. And uh, at this time, I was staying on Reed Island. He was leading a retreat over there on Cortez. Now, I didn't get to meet him, but I, I met some people who'd done some stuff with him um, at that time, and that was the initial connection. I got in touch with him through this connection in Japan, and I got a message, you know, pretty much straight back. Come, I think it was pretty much a one-word message, and uh, and so i went and uh, so i showed up in um, uh, Gyokuruji is um, is a small place uh, it was originally the hermitage of one of the greatest of uh, japan zen masters zen master bankei who um, I think without without really any question was the most popular Zen master who's ever lived in Japan. He had an extraordinary ability to reach out to people of all types and an incredible simplicity in his teaching. So this was his hermitage. Um, and when I went over, there were about 12 people there. Um, and um, so um, I was... Um, somewhat of a space alien when I first arrived. My Japanese was pretty hopeless. Um, uh, they, they teach you a kind of, if you learn, if you go to normal classes, they teach you a kind of semi-formal Japanese, bit like um, maybe the Japanese you'd speak to a bank manager. And nobody was speaking like that when I showed up. So it was almost like back to square one with all of that, you know, and um, uh, but, but Zen Master Shinzen was very accommodating, very welcoming and um, uh, very positive. And I think uh, a big part of that was um, his background. He'd grown up, he was born in 1935. So he was about 10 when the war ended. And apparently in his area, he was up in Northern Japan. um, The schooling system had pretty much fallen apart by the end of the war. And he described uh, being in a kind of like a little gang of um, nine ten-year-olds um all with a kind of having a sharpened bamboo maybe six or eight feet long and uh you know they they were led by uh maybe a 14 or 15 year old and basically every day they practiced hiding in the in the trees and killing an american everyone in japan was preparing for a kind of full-on guerrilla war really and japan is the ideal country for that You've got 80% of the land mass is mountain land, mostly thickly forested mountain land. If it had come to a land war, it would have been absolutely horrendous. So basically, this was what he was doing, you know, every day. And then suddenly um, the bomb dropped and boom. Uh you know it was all over there was an American soldier apparently in their village giving out sweets and teaching them how to play baseball and uh, you know something in him just unwound and uh, uh, I remember he said to me I cried and um, I, since that time apparently he was he'd always been pretty open to westerners and uh, he'd actually started to um, uh, to teach fairly regularly in the West. This time I heard about him in Canada was one of a series of um, annual visits he'd made taught in, in America and, and Canada primarily. Um, and so, uh, so he was quite open. The other guys were, I mean, they were, it was just like, you know, I was just like this alien really but but they were great really they were fine Uh, but it was very i mean it's very hierarchical so i was down the bottom of the ladder again even though i'd actually spent way over twice the sort of monastic time that any of the other guys had but you know it was that was good that was fine um so so yeah so that was how the connection got made um he gave me the the koan mu to study which um, I expect you're probably familiar with. It's a very common beginner's one where um, uh, there's this question, um, does a dog have Buddha nature? And Zen master Joshu from back in the Tang Dynasty in China answers Mu, which means no or not. But we have this very uh, commonly known Buddhist teaching that everything has or is the Buddha nature. So why does he deny this? What's this not or no about? And so the the question is, uh, what is this no or not or negative? Perhaps we could say un in English. Uh, but the the study wasn't wasn't any kind of intellectual thing. He basically sent me up on the mountain behind the monastery every night to shout moo. To just literally shout moo all night long, moo, 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 and basically it's very steep. Once you're up there, uh, till the light comes up, you're not getting back down again, no way. And so, um, so you just shout moo with all your might. And after about an hour, hour and a half, your voice is just shredded. There's nothing coming out. And so then I'd sit for a little bit, you know, maybe an hour or something. The voice would come back, shout again, voice would go, and this would kind of alternate. Uh, through the night and then when the light came, you know, come down again, go into Sans and like interview with him and try to present some kind of understanding. And, uh, and it was like, Nope, that's your training place. And uh, I think basically, um, um, teachers tend to favor the mode that worked for them. And for him doing night sitting on, in his training monastery one night he actually you know shouted mu and uh, i remember he's he was describing this once and he said in english i lost myself you know and that was his his uh, uh, that was when the door opened for him so he kind of favored this this night practice um so what was he like what was he like well um he was um and is uh well, right now he's um, he's got quite serious Alzheimer's disease. So um, he's uh, the last time I saw him, he was in hospital. He's lost all his strength really, um, and actually, so this was last October. Um, it's the first time where we'd had some time together, and I wasn't a hundred percent sure he knew who I was. Far on that line now. It's been quite aggressive, quite rapid um and uh so basically um what i saw was like um he was like a little baby you know like literally curl up in the fetal position wrapped in a sheet with a little gray beard that's what he's kind of like right now um and uh kind of heartbreaking in some ways uh, although you know through this whole process because it has been a you know i've been with him you know through it basically um at at different times and I've never seen a trace of fear or resistance around it he's just kind of gone with it and his eyes are still sh- uh, shining and bright and his skin's still beautiful um but nevertheless you know it's um it's kind of uh, also kind of sad as well um so what was he like before this well he's he's very much been um uh, a maverick really um uh he doesn't come from a temple family uh he doesn't come from this background where he's been brought up from birth as this is his kind of destiny uh he's had to seek this out um basically you know his his uh his training ground initially was the um post-war japan experience where the country was basically in ruins you know a lot of it was had been very very extensively Fire bombed wooden buildings, you know, whole cities become literally sheets of fire. And so the great um, impulse was to rebuild and so he, he was part of this. He got into construction as a young guy after university um, and, uh, you know, he had great plans to make a fortune for himself and also help with this reconstruction effort and um, uh, he was the most hopeless business guy. So uh, he uh, he did a couple of years, as, as from what I heard, in a kind of a big construction firm and then branched out on his own, set up a kind of a, a logistics kind of construction, delivery and logistics firm. And apparently um, he always undercharged and he was always very wobbly financially. Um, and uh, it got to the point um, where there was a, uh, a delivery that needed to be made and uh, it was late and uh, a typhoon was brewing up and the driver refused to to go so he apparently pulled the driver out of the way got in the cab and and, and headed off and uh, somewhere in this um in this uh, in this delivery process somebody got killed there was an accident and uh, so the company kind of rolled up i'm not sure sh- i'm i'm not 100 percent sure whether it was a pedestrian or somebody else in a vehicle um, but somebody got killed the company just basically you know that was it. it it was the last straw
0: you mean he was involved in a road crash and someone died in that crash
1: yeah he died he killed somebody yeah um and then um so that all collapsed so then he um he uh He had another go. There was apparently some kind of cooking oil shortage at this time, and he came up with some kind of plan to, as it were, buy used cooking oil from restaurants and other establishments like that, put it through some kind of process, and then sell it back again. And uh, he got his par. He didn't have a lot of money by this point. Um, He he got his parents invested, you know, and. Basically, the whole thing didn't work, you know, and not only had he lost all his own money, but he sort of lost his parents' money as well. And again, you know, he was back to square one and feeling a complete abject failure. So uh, so he went down to the railway tracks and put his head on the on on the tracks, you know, seeing absolutely no avenue forward. And he couldn't even go through with that. You know, he he, um, lost his nerve at the last minute. So he was feeling like an utter, utter failure where he couldn't even top himself. Um, And um, so uh, uh, as I understand it, he was driving around pretty aimlessly, um, you know, feeling like a a worm. And uh, it was raining and he was driving past a railway station and there was a, a nun standing in the rain trying to get a taxi and couldn't get a taxi, you know, trying to, you know, get out of the rain sort of thing. So he pulled up and uh, she got in, he gave her a ride back to her temple. And um, she was apparently an extraordinarily bright spirit, very positive and everything really, you know, like a ray of sunlight. And um, uh, he didn't tell her much about what what shape he was in, um, but apparently she could tell and uh, he dropped her off. And um, as far as I could gather, he 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 never told her where he lived or anything like this. And then out of the blue, a couple of days later, there was this knock on the door and this nun was stood there with a book. And, and uh, you know, she said, I, I thought you might like to read this. And it was, a, she was a Zen nun, Rinzai Zen. And uh, so, um, you know he he had no interest in religion at this point uh, he was he was he was a business guy he was going to make his fortune he was going to rebuild japan you know this was his kind of orientation anyway um, it was a book called zenshin roku uh, uh roku excuse me uh, kind of like uh, the um, the uh, 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 It literally means sort of purifying the heart, a book about purifying or clarifying the heart or mind. Anyway, not the sort of thing he was reading. So he thanked her, you know, and she disappeared, you know, and it was like, how on earth did she find him? It was all a bit of a mystery, really. Um, But anyway, um, sometime later, week or two later, I gather, he sort of opened this book up, you know, and uh, something in it really resonated with him so he went and, and uh sought out this nun and uh you know uh sort of uh she became something of a mentor and uh he got started to get interested in zen and it 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 opened up a new avenue a new possibility and basically you know she ended up introducing him to the zen master that she studied with and um uh, and in fairly short order, he ended up becoming uh, a Zen monk. He, she, her, and the nuns that she lived with—they made all his robes for him, and they were kind of like his, his sort of, um, you know, cheering him on, as it were. And so he ended up um, uh, studying in in a monastery in in the center of a town uh, called Gifu, which is kind of a, a small city in uh, central Japan. Gifu is probably about the size of um, Salisbury or Canterbury, that kind of size. And this this monastery, which is quite a well-known monastery, Zui um, uh, nevertheless, it's right in the center of the city, as many Rinzai monasteries are. They're, they're, they're quite urban. Rinzai is quite an, an urban school but the thing is these urban monasteries tend to attract the um, the guys who are going through the motions because it's easy to climb over the wall at night and get up to mischief in town, you know, all that stuff. So anyway, um, he was studying there for a little while and um, the Zen master there um, recognized that there was a, a kind of a si- sincerity here, um, that, that, that this guy actually wanted to really do something. And so um, actually, sent him on to a a a rural monastery called Shogenji, uh, which is one of the relatively few um, rinzai zen monasteries which is way away from all that sort of thing and um, uh, this one was uh, had the nickname oni sodo oni means devil or demon sort of monastery so the devil's dojo uh, it gets sometimes translated in english had the reputation of being the strictest um, Zen monastery in uh, in Japan, um, with a Zen master called itsugai and um, so um, to start with, um, itsugai basically wouldn't even take any notice of this of this of this new new guy. So you had um, uh, most of the unsuis, the young monks, the novice monks, were you know early twenties. This new guy was at this point early thirties. So he didn't fit he stuck out like a sore thumb he um he uh he was this loser guy who hadn't even managed to top himself so it's a guy just wouldn't even take this guy seriously at all wouldn't let him come to sanzen the uh, the private sort of interviews just wouldn't let him in the door so um um uh, roshi basically stuck with him he, um, he uh, at one point, he he had a week um, meditation retreat in a cave. Um, and uh, after this, he was walking back to the monastery. Itzagai was, was in a car, saw him, pulled up and said, where have you been? And, um, you know, Shinzen said, I've been sitting in this particular cave nearby. And uh, at, th- at that point, Itzagai started to let him come to Sanzen and... And uh, that was a very, very beautiful meeting. At that point, it's a guy was really his true teacher, and um, a very strict, real force of nature, and uh, um, uh, uh, a, a quite a highly regarded um, Zen master in the in the sort of scheme of things. Which they're not all. There's it's a mixed picture. Um, I can tell you, um, but uh, it's a guy was really the one, and um, so he he basically you know did pretty well studying with him um, life was very very hard very very bare bones there um, I remember one story he told me about um, uh, because it was way out in the country once a week they would go on kind of arms round, um, you know uh, uh, very traditional zen thing but because it was so far out they would be basically out for a day and they would basically run for a day you know in straw sandals um, whatever the weather, um, and uh, so he 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 one at one time he he was well known, he was very good at massage, always very good at physical stuff, had a bit of a martial arts background in his early life. Anyway, so he gets back from uh, from basically a day running, you know in on uh, on arms round, and uh, the word comes down, um, Itsugai Roshi wants a massage. you know he was quite he was kind of favored for this. And Itsugai was pretty fat you know, um, as quite a lot of the the guys are, Uh, they've they've kind of force feed them, very high carb, force feed these guys. um, And so a lot of them end up pretty kind of roly-poly really. Anyway, um, so, um, so he goes in, you know, and he's absolutely dead tired, dog tired. So he starts massaging it's a guy and he's so exhausted that he literally falls asleep with his head on Itzagai's pretty comfortable bum, and uh, he wakes up in the middle of the night. Everything's dark, and Itzagai has laid still half the night. So, so to let him get a little bit of sleep, he wakes up and he sort of creep, creeps out in the night. But that was kind of like Itzagai's compassionate side, if you like. But mostly, he was very fierce. Anyway, because he was quite a well-regarded Zen master. Um, um, uh he he gets sort of um uh promoted if you like up to um they want him to be the the roshi of the of the biggest um zen mas- uh zen monastery in japan um and so he goes off and he he's got a, a student that he leaves as a kind of a stopgap guy who's not so impressive um but he's the guy who's been around longest and um uh, and so Shinzhen and the other younger guys are expected to now carry on their sons their zen study with this rather unimpressive character and um that doesn't work well at all and uh, you know um Shinzan's a bit of an idealist really and he's also made some good strides in his own practice he, he knows this guy's no good really um so he ends up going over to kyoto to to talk to it's a guy and says, you know, this guy is no good, you know, I, I um, you know, I just, um, it just ain't working, you know, and it's a guy, you know, he goes with him, he says, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. Um, um, and uh, as sure as my eye is black, you are worthy to be the next Zen master of Shorgenji, you know, um, but I need you to go back and, um, you know, you know, just put in the years kind of thing. And he goes back and he has a go, but he just can't do it. It's just so... just doesn't work. And this guy's a bit of a bad lot, really. I mean, he ends up at one point, you know, after it's a guy's dead and he becomes the the Roshi of, of Shogengi, he ends up selling a good lump of the Temple Grounds to a golf course development company, you know, gets turned into a country club, and there's lots of weird stuff with money and you know all the normal you know unfortunate stuff goes on um so it's all uh, very unfortunate so anyway um, shinzan at a certain point um he basically um walks out the door he says i can't do this and he goes to another zen master up in northern japan um, a good guy um, called inaba shinden and uh, but he, he's quite vocal in going out the door, which makes this previous guy look bad, okay? It's the guy's dead by this point. Um, and anyway, so he goes up to Inaba Shinden um, and he's living in a tiny little monastery up in, uh, a tiny little temple up in the, the mountains, but he's going down and studying with uh, Inaba Shinden for sessions, for, for retreats. And Inaba Shinden wants him to be a successor and um you know he puts the word out this is what's going to happen and so on and then right in the middle of uh, of a session in aber shinden has a heart attack and dies boom kind of like that so um so you know even though the paperwork isn't there everybody knows about this intention so all the preparations are there to make shinzan a um you know the um the next roshi of this monastery um, and this guy that he's kind of made look bad back at Shōgenji gets to hear about this and gets to pull all the possible strings he can in the background to um, torpedo this, to make this not able to happen. And so it, it doesn't actually go through. And uh, so at this point, um, Shinzhen sort of steps out of the the mainstream, as it were, and he goes off and he, he basically takes over, moves in on uh, uh, to uh, this hermitage that um, Zen Master Banke had lived in back in the uh, Edo period, back in the 18th century, 17th, 18th, uh, 18th century, actually 17th century, excuse me, and uh, and basically he he basically he steps out of this system, this seminary system, if you like. He no longer is he is he particularly going to be involved in training. You know, young guys to go off and be temple priests. He basically puts up a sign at the at the temple gate um, that translates as something like uh, "training place for young and old people to come and find their true nature." And so he basically orientates the um, the uh, gyokuruji towards that. Um, he opens the door for everybody, and it's not specifically a training school at that point for. For, for young monks, it's uh, as I say as I say, it's um, essentially it's uh, as he views it, a place where people can come and uh, and do the important things. and uh, and so that's that's basically what he does. So weirdly enough in in sort of stepping out of the of the uh, a formal role of Zen master really, he in a sense he becomes, I suppose what we would probably think of what a Zen master really is um so paradoxically um so and that's that's what he became and so um you have um in the sort of um in this in the sort of ecclesiastical structure of zen you have these what are called sodos or training monasteries these seminaries and then you have these um kind of um village and town temples you lived in by hereditary families these days and then you have these relatively small I, I only know of two but there are probably others around the place what we could call hermitage temples and the thing about those is they don't have any source of income the main source of income in the mainstream is funerals funerals is is really big business in japan you can uh, um, uh, you have a system of um, family graves in japan where um, uh, uh, it's, it's cremation, basically, is the, is the mode of dealing with, with, the, with the dead. And so the ashes of the dead tempt, uh, of a particular family tend to be put in one family grave. Many of these family graves go back hundreds of years. And so that family grave is a very important symbol of a, uh, or center point of a particular family line. Most of these graves are on temple grounds and uh, when japan started getting rich back in you know whatever it was the 70s 80s 90s i guess um, the temple started to realize that they had a real kind of um, pull here and so it became well um you know if you want to you know if you want to have a funeral here family grave and all that then, um, unfortunately, you know, we 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 have to ask you for a, 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 a quite a big donation, you know, because our expenses are very high, and even to this day, you know, a funeral is maybe six thousand U.S. dollars equivalent in Japan. You know, it can be easily that kind of amount of money. Um, and so, um, you know, one thing that Shinzan was very uh, against was was this system, um, and he, not not alone in that. Uh, there was even a satirical movie made in Japan called Soshiki and the kind of climactic moment is um, this: this white Rolls Royce kind of slowly comes around the corner to the grieving family, and out comes this this guy dressed in monk's robes, you know, tiny little guy, enormous car, um, you know, and starts starts chanting, starts leading this this funeral. Um, and of course this has eroded a lot of trust that people have uh, or people traditionally had people know that they're getting um ripped off here um and uh, and it's 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 been very very unfortunate so he's been very outspoken in in um in um in uh, criticizing this funeral system and actually got to the point where he started to train people to do their own funerals and to, as lay people, to to, to do funerals outside this system. And uh, while people on the quiet, you know, were, you know, taking his point, when this started to happen, that there was a bit of a backlash and uh, he got some pretty stern letters from head office, you know, you need to stop doing this. And he just carried on and then uh, there were kind of a few indirect sort of um, criticisms came along. and then uh, and then eventually, um, you know, you've really got to stop doing this. And he basically withdrew from the from the Rinzai uh, from the myo Shinji line of the Rinzai school at that point, and uh, just carried on, you know, doing what he was doing. and um, and then a few years later, they said, you know, they, they responded by, well, you're chucked out then. But he'd already gone, you know, five or 10 years by this point. But it all got very messy and political and so on. Um, so uh, so basically, he carried on as a kind of a freelance guy at that point. And, um, and so, for example, my status in the, in, the, in the scheme of things, despite the fact I've lived pretty much 20 years in Zen establishments, I've never formally been a part of the... Of the official soto i have zero status in the soto zen school in japan i have zero status in the rinzai zen school in japan zero zilch nothing um and uh and and he's but that's his situation as well these days he's kind of a complete outsider in terms of the um the uh, the situation which seems to suit him just fine as i say he's uh, he's uh, he's a maverick really and um I remember he used to get invitations to, um, you know, conferences and things like this in the West sometimes. And uh, so quite often I'd have to sort of write the speech for him and then we'd kind of rehearse his English and so on. And um, I remember one of these, we were doing this and, uh, you know, and he said to me, here I go again tilting at windmills, you know, somewhere along he'd he'd come across the Don Quixote story and he knew, he knew that's what he was like, Um, but, Basically, um, for me, he was a wonderful, a wonderful teacher and um, a true, um, you know, sometimes I think the Tibetans particularly talk about the teacher as a as a wish fulfilling gem. And um, there was something of that quality for me. Um, uh, For example, um, at one point I got very interested in the in the fire ceremony. uh, what they call in Japanese the goma, which has a very tiny little thread going on within Zen. It's not entirely absent, but it's not a big deal. But it is a really big deal in in uh, the Shingon School, the, the Japanese version of Vajrayana. And I was trying to work out some way, how could I learn the goma? What? How could that happen? What could we do? You know, and I was sort of thinking this over for a, a week or a month, I can't remember. And at some point, completely out of the blue, I'd never mentioned anything about this. He sat me down and said, right, I'm gonna teach you the goma. You know, and this kind of thing happened, you know, time and again. It was like if something was really right, really true, really good, then somehow or other he would make it happen. And uh, so it was kind of, um, you know, amazing, really. Um, but it was also kind of um, very different to my previous Zen experience. Um, so my previous um, training had been very, very structured. And uh, a very hierarchical and, you know, quite formal and all that. Now, Shinzhen had and probably still has, as much as he has anything, had the ability to create just about constant chaos around him. You never knew what was going to happen next. It was like... Every, I don't know, even when you're really in the groove with him, at least once a week or or once a fortnight, it was like the rug got completely pulled out from under. It, you literally never knew what was going to happen. And um, uh, sometimes it got pretty wild. Sometimes it got violent. Um, but uh, it was tremendous learning, just really tremendous learning. And I think particularly for me, um, because I'd had all these years of kind of institutionalization i think he, he he probably thought right this guy needs a bit of unstuffing and so i got quite a lot of this and uh, there was never a sense of kind of manipulation going on it just seemed to happen it just seemed to be just i don't know he just seemed to create this energy around him somehow and so it was it was pretty wild it was pretty intense you you didn't know what was going to happen next um but it was tremendous learning, and if you could hold on um it was amazing it was really amazing. not everybody could handle it because um I think you needed a pretty solid grounding or or it was just too much. it was just mm-hmm. you got kind of a bit swept away by it all um but um uh, but for me it was it was it was like gift beyond gift really um got it was tough at times we had a terrible fire um um it was a uh, november the 5th um must have been 2005 maybe yeah i always remember Guy Fawkes day it was uh, 2000 half the temple burnt down in about 40 minutes uh oh. so we ended up with um with um uh no office no kitchen uh, no bathhouse um uh A lot of the accommodation was gone. Um, uh, The the temple was like an L-shape. And we were kind of like working on, you know, the the local fire brigade who were volunteer guys showed up. We were all helping. We were trying to save it from going around the corner, stop the fire from going around the corner, which was the main hall and everything. And um, uh, I remember right in the middle of all this, Shinzo Miroshi, the fire had started at his end of the building. He he basically... uh, um, he it, it, right close to his room, and um, he'd just finished a book, um, uh, and uh, so he he ran into the burning building. Uh, his room was upstairs. And um, I'd done some fire study in my previous sort of, um, you know, about what to do with fires and so on. And I knew that most people died from smoke. very few people get burned to death. And so um, I ran in after him, up the stairs um and uh he'd run into his room that was right where the at the most intense place grabbed his computer i think he was trying to save this book he'd just written um, and he ran out so i took the computer out of his hand ran to the end to the top of the stairs and uh uh, he'd gone back in his room again so i dumped the computer at the top of the stairs ran back you know and then they, he gave me something else i can't remember what it was and so it, i ended up running up and down this corridor and you know uh, it was like there was no way i was gonna let you know him him get done in you know, on top of the temple probably getting bur- burnt down so at a certain point um uh you know, the, you know, it was just getting too intense in there. I just grabbed him and said, Roshi, we're out of here, we're, we gotta go, we gotta go. And we, the, the stairs were so steep and the fire was so rapid that basically his pile of stuff at the top of the stairs, not even one thing could we get, we lost the damn lot. And, uh, and so a little bit later, you know, we were on the, I was on a hose and everything, and he walked behind me and he said four words in English, everything gone but okay and it was kind of true he didn't miss a beat it was um and the fire was almost surgical almost clinical it was like um it really was everything gone like a lot of japanese people um um he liked taking photos and in the main office um there had been these photo albums up on the up on the shelves you know quite a bunch maybe 10 of them and uh, photos don't really burn and so the day after um, this thing um these these photos these kind of singed photos were like floating in the ash pile and it was like his life you know just like it was in unbelievably poignant really and just about the only other things that made it were i found a couple of tea bowls that had been almost like fired again in this um in this extra you know conflagration and i've still got one of them you know it's like uh, all the glaze has melted and you know it's kind of scorched and everything uh, you can actually drink tea out of it i've i have actually used it in tea ceremony once it's a kind of like slightly weird um survivor of this whole thing and there were a couple of those and basically everything else was just completely gone completely gone um so anyway um, you know, this this really hit everybody pretty hard, as you can imagine. So the next morning, um, uh, um, uh, the only people who showed up for for morning chanting and sitting and everything were Shinsen Roshi and myself. Um, you know, everybody else just didn't. I, I don't know, bit shell shocked or whatever. I guess. Um, and it was really weirdly enough, it was that it was from then on that. Um, he started to, I, I suppose, kind of take me seriously as possibly a successor. Um, the uh, He had a number two guy who was all kind of lined up for all that, who um, uh, like a lot of those number two guys was very busy, very overworked. And one of his jobs had been to um, renew the uh, the building insurance, you know, and he'd forgotten. And it came out a few days later there was zero coverage for all this, you know, it was like, and uh, so we were all watching this guy very carefully after that, because that's a typical situation where somebody might go and do something desperate, you know what I mean? Um, but he didn't, but um, but he did depart um, after a bit, and he went off and became a farmer. He was always very keen on on growing stuff, you know, we had a quite an extensive um, rice field and veg patch and stuff uh, before this. Um, so yeah, so, um, so yeah. and and over that winter happened in November. Fire happened in November. and um, uh, we went down from about twelve guys to probably about five or something. People found sick grandmothers that they had to go and look after and various reasons, whatever. And so, strangely enough, although you know it was it was really a bit bit tough, and uh, um, it, that, was, that was when, you know, um, he started to, I suppose, think in terms of, um, you know, me as possibly, you know, being a, a bit of a candidate for, you know, for the next in line kind of thing. So, yeah, so that's sort of um, how, how all that kind of came about, really. How did the fire start? Yeah, well, that was a story. So you, you've probably heard there was a terrible, desperate, absolutely um, um, terrifying cult in Japan called Omshin Rikyo. They, they had a lot of money and uh, they got into a real kind of Armageddon doomsday kind of mindset. They, they had enough money that they were in the market for buying nuclear waste, they were buying poison gas, they were buying serious poisons and drugs and uh, weapons, you know, crazy, crazy stuff. And uh, uh, this was a kind of like an inner circle were doing all this stuff. The rank and file people just thought it, it was a very idealistic spiritual movement, I guess. Um, and anyway, it all culminated in this release of multiple doses of heavy duty poison gas on the Tokyo, um, tube system, the subway system at rush hour, about, um, 13 people died and thousands got really, really seriously sick from this. Um, and, um, so this cult suddenly, uh. You know, became very, very highlighted within Japanese society. People were absolutely terrified of them. You know, they became um, like, uh, you know, like uh, far, far more uh, persona non grata than mafia people or regular murderers. They were, they were like people were utterly terrified of them. So these, all, these ordinary rank and file cult people, you know, had terrible trouble kind of getting back into society again. Nobody would rent them flats. They couldn't get jobs. Um, they were tarred with this brush. They were they were both, um, uh, you know, seen as figures of fear and also figures of repulsion, really. So Shinzan Roshi got very involved in helping people to kind of come out of this and get back into society, kind of like a halfway house type of thing. You know, he, he was helping people to to, um, you know, uh, sort of go through him. And um, he helped a lot of people this way. And um, so right after this fire, there were, you know, the rumor mill went into overdrive that maybe this was anti-cult people who didn't like the way he was helping these these ex-cult members, or it was people still in the cult who didn't want him to be, you know, um, sort of uh, helping ex-members, you know, and that there was so much paranoia and fear. And, you know, it was it was kind of a wild time, kind of surreal, really. Um, and then um, the word, you know, the, then the fire investigation people, you know, the local fire brigade investigation people worked out that it was a, we had a young boy staying in the temple who was about nine or 10 years old, but he had a a little growth defect type of thing. So he, he he had the uh, he was mentally about age age um, age five or something like that didn't really fit in the Japanese school system and his parents had asked if he could come and live in the temple for a little bit and and just sort of you know get a bit of a different thing you know country air that sort of stuff um, and so he'd been by himself found some matches it was November driest time of the year and he'd made all these little fires nobody had noticed. And one of them um was was right on the spot right close to um to to the uh temple buildings, and the fire had just jumped across and bush off it went, you know whoops yeah, so his parents showed up the next day or something, you know terribly apologetic and all that and um and uh, off he went, you know um, uh, uh, yeah, so that was that really
0: I'm curious about uh your statement there that Shinzan perhaps looked at you and thought, here's a guy who could do with some unstuffing and also about your description of the chaos and occasional violence, uh, going on at the temple, uh, somehow linking those together. Can you think of a, an example of, of that chaos or, or violence as it pertained to you and what was your journey becoming unstuffed by that process mm. or by that environment?
1: All right. Well, um, so um, in some ways, I used to think about living around him must have been a little bit like living with Jesus, um, in the sense of anybody who was like a bit of an outsider or, you know, got into trouble or, you know, a bit crackers or anything, he'd be terribly, terribly, you know, wanting to to include them. You know what I mean? And um, so I remember one time he was away, and um, we had this guy uh, who, um, uh, oh, we've got some people showing up who are also doing an interview. Anyway, um, perhaps we can finish this. But. So anyway, uh, yeah, so he, Shinzan is away, I'm in charge. And uh, there's this guy who's, who's a bit eccentric, shall we say. And at the end of the meals, uh, he starts to um, say a, a few words. You know, this is silent time but he starts to sort of um uh deliver these kind of gnomic zen utterances and um uh, uh you know i'm in touch by phone with uh, with uh shinden roshi and he says kind of leave him alone don't worry he'll settle down and anyway this starts to build up starts to you know starts to turn almost into a sermon after each damn meal and it's like don't worry he'll settle down you know just And um, and it's kind of getting more extreme. And this guy is starting to say stuff like, um, uh, you know, um, I have the power of life and death. Um, You know, this kind of thing. And uh, and then uh, and then he starts to say, well, I could burn down the rest of this temple. You know, and I'm getting worried now. Like, you know, like uh, this guy could do something desperate. He looks like, you know, he's not messing about here. And so I, you know, I, I'm on the phone to Shinzan and um, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, this guy's getting, I think, dangerous uh, and, and he says, well, uh, there's a psychologist that w- that w- who comes to the temple at weekends. Get him involved. So I get onto this psychology guy. He's absolutely useless, won't, won't get involved. I get back to Shinzan and I say, really, 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 this guy is going to start getting dangerous. Um, and he's very reluctant, but says, OK, all right. Okay. Let's. We we'll go. I'll go with what you say. So I get another, another. You know, um, a helper. And uh, so we go and find this guy. And I start talking to him. And I, oh, I've locked the gate. I'm so sorry. Just give me one Hello. second. I'm
0: so sorry about that. No problem. When are you supposed to be uh, starting with them?
1: Uh, well, it's supposed to be um, uh, kind of nowish. But maybe we could. Is that, would that be all right if we sort of wrap this one up yeah we'll wrap it up sure and then we can do m- more later if you like or or down the line another day or whatever
0: uh yeah you want to finish the story of this guy or oh if you like
1: <clears throat> actually i don't know if any of this is any use for your people really is it it's not very edifying any of this is it it's interesting where i'd like to go with it is of course
0: uh part three perhaps we'll look at there's practices you discussed and there's there's some more to say i think about shinzen roshi but, uh we, we can certainly wrap it up. I mean we don't, you don't have to finish the story. We can just say suddenly you have to stop.
1: Well, well and then you you cut it off if it's a load of old nonsense, you know, probably is so um, so anyway, I get, I get a uh, somebody to help me, and we go and find this guy, and uh, so I start talking to him. You know, everybody needs a break now and again and, uh, you know, sometimes it can get a bit intense and, you know, basically, while I'm talking, 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 we're getting him to the car, you know, getting him in the car and the idea is we're going to drive him to the the sort of nearest railway station and then send him home and then when Shinzo Roshi is back, then, you know, maybe things can settle down, he can come back and we can sort of reset, as it were. So anyway, we, we I'm just talking, talking, talking. I don't want this guy to, to um, you know, to basically have too much uh, um, sort of uh, space to, to think. So get him to the station, get him up the stairs to the ticket office. I'm just talking, talking, talking. Get him to the, you know, to the window. I don't know what his home station is. I don't know where he's from. So anyway, we ask him. And at that moment, I think he really gets it that we're sending him home. And he just does a runner, he starts running. And this is only about say, I don't know, maybe eight, 10 miles from the temple. So what I don't want is this guy coming back in the night and then burning the damn place down. So me and this other guy, we're running after this guy through the car park, dodging around the cars, trying to catch up with him. And sort of diagonally across the car park is a thing they call in Japanese a koban, which is like a tiny little police station, like a miniature police station. And he runs in there and we run in after him. And he's sat there up at the counter with these two cops, you know, and talking to them. And, you know, we're sat at the back and, And it's like, oh, my God, if the cops let him go, we can't exactly strong arm him onto a train at that point, can we? Um, So anyway, we're sat there. And um, anyway, the cops are sort of, you know, needling him a little bit. And at a certain point, he just sort of... um, you know, he sort of shouts and he runs out of the gate of the coban. So then it's these two rather plump Japanese cops with all their guns and things flapping around and us two guys running after this guy. And then, you know, in the end, you know, and they're radioing and stuff. And, and in the end, you know, we, we have to go to the main police station and they bring him down and we're sat there for hours waiting. And, and eventually they, they ship him back to his home base and, uh, uh, and we hear later that he, he does get admitted to a, a mental hospital and needs some fairly heavy-duty kind of treatment and stuff. Um, but, you know, um, there was quite a bit of that sort of thing, where it's just like, you've just got to make something work, you know, and uh, you've got to deal with situations.
0: Well, dai thank you very much. I know you've got some other interviewers coming here now, or have just arrived. So perhaps we'll do a part three, and at that time, look at those energy practices that you learn there in that Rinzai
1: style. Sure, and I'll try and come up with some stories that are maybe a little bit more spiritual, if you like. Thank you very much, Dizer. Thank you. Nice to see you, Steve. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast.
0: For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.